The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello and welcome. It's another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. This time around, I'm going to be presenting my interview with Dale Korn. You just never know who you're going to meet in this life. My favorite interview of all time was the one that I did with Frank Sinatra Jr., rest his soul, and I asked him who was the best at interpreting the American songbook. He mentioned a few singers, Diana Krall, and then he mentioned Dale Korn. I had no idea, but Dale Korn and I would become good friends. Dale Korn and I communicated for quite a while, and then he announced that he was going to be coming out with another album, We did this interview, which aired on the radio in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm pleased to announce that on the day that you're listening to this, if you're getting it on the debut day, that is, I'll be picking Dale Korn up from the airport in Atlanta, Georgia, and we're going to be going to the Hoboken Cafe. I'll keep you updated. In the meantime, enjoy this interview with Dale Korn. Ladies and gentlemen, we're joined by a singer and band leader, a man who is unapologetically old school. Dale Korn, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure. First of all, I'm a little curious. I don't know if I've ever met a Korn. (laughs) What kind of last name is Korn? Well, it's definitely spelled like the vegetable. I have some people that try to put a K in there. My father is uh, from East Tennessee without getting into a lot of the, the history, uh, my great grand or yeah, the, the man that we perceived as our great grandfather was actually an adopted uh, father to my dad's father. So, and, and he just took on the name corn. So, and, and the only thing that I'll go a little bit further with that, it's very appropriate because my grandfather on my dad's side and his adopted father used to make moonshine and actually uh, had a couple of skirmishes with the, uh, with the feds. And that's about as far as I'm going to go with that. <laughs> the kind of music that you most like, the Great American Songbook, Jazz Standards, where did that interest begin? It would prob- I, would, I would have to credit my, my other grandfather, the one on my mother's side, because he was a he was a big influence uh, in my life. No, no disrespect to my fa- uh, my father or my mother, or anybody else in the family. It's just that me and my grandfather had a very close friendship, and it started with trains. Actually, believe it or not, and my grandfather was a railroader for forty three years. So we would do a lot of railroad things, and I would spend a lot of time with him. Hardly a week would go by. And then he would try to expose me to some other things. I've met a lot of uh, people that he knew growing up. So long story short, my exposure to the music came somewhere about eight or nine years old. He found a cassette tape that had some sounds, just various sounds. It was uh, a tape that was copied off of an LP that... The way I proceeded, it tested a, a brain, uh, what would be a test record for a stereo system when, when you buy something from a, 
let's say Sears or if you're my neck of the woods, uh, Montgomery Wards, which doesn't even exist anymore. If you bought a stereo with an LP turntable and it would come with an LP that would test the stereo quality, left channel, right channel. And we were listening to these sounds in there and it was some of your fully type sounds where you have a steam train or you have a fire engine and so forth. And on that recording had a couple of uh, big band songs. And one of them was uh, Chattanooga Choo Choo. Love and, it. Oh uh, yeah. That is the song that, that at least piqued my interest because of my, my strong interest in trains at that time of my life, you know, hearing a railroad song that didn't sound like a country music song was very appealing to me. Mm-hmm. And then my grandfather started explaining a little bit about Glenn Miller and um, the Dorsey brothers. And he kind of went a different direction musically as far as what he favored compared to what I would eventually would favor, where he was more Jimmy Dorsey and then kind of took a detour off into Lawrence Welk, where I would go for Tommy Dorsey and then venture off to Count Basie. But that's where the inspiration came from, was just spending time with my grandfather and taking an interest in things that he liked because I was open to, you know, different things from what my generation found interesting. If you could put it into words, what would you say it is that is so appealing about this kind of music? Uh, I would have to say, first off, definitely the... The quality of the material, I mean, most most songs, particularly vocals, have a, a tendency to tell a story. And there are other genres that can tell a story. But I think when you take that and you couple it to, let's say, a big band or an orchestra, the quality of the writing and the fact that it, it takes not just one person, but it takes multiple people with talent to to make it all come together i don't think it's any just one thing i think it's a combination of of the the material the quality of the material the talent that it takes to perform that music would you say that it requires a stronger level of musicianship to execute this kind of music most definitely as far as as far as the my perspective of it and and i and i kind of went backwards in 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 the way I had approached it, because my ability to read music at a younger age, I had a learning disability. So I had to come up with a different way to learn how to read music eventually. And the methods I would use to practice were kind of bordered to a karaoke singer, but that had to change over the years, where when I look at people that go the traditional route, they start out with the fundamental class and the theory class. And I see people that may come from a different genre, whether they're a rock and roll performer or they're a classical performer. A good example is there is a young gentleman that plays piano in my big band. And he is 16 years old. And his father, who has been playing piano for pretty much his entire life, is essentially classically trained. And 
they both have very strong classical chops, if you will. But when it comes to doing jazz, doing, let's just say, a head arrangement for the novice that, that might be out there doesn't understand that term, you take a song, it could be any song that you, you want, you have a, a regular piano lead sheet with which has the melody, the chord structure, and if you have a vocalist, maybe has the lyrics, uh, maybe, and you discuss with the players, okay, let's play one time through, go back to a solo from here to here, and then out. His father will tell you up front that he struggles to do improvised jazz, if you will, whether it's a standard or something a little bit more complex, where his son just excels at both styles. And nothing to take away from his father. His father does really well, but he'll admit that he doesn't have the comfort to do that as easily as his son does. And then another good example is you have in the region that I'm from, I, I, I live in the Baltimore area, and our proximity to Washington, D.C., we have access to a lot of musicians who play in these military groups, jazz bands and classical orchestras that the, the military has, each branch of the service. You have people that excel in doing classical music and then you have some that excel in in big band and jazz and so forth. But if you're in one of those military groups, you're more than likely capable to do all styles, not just one. I would have to agree there's a lot of a lot of talent that requires the performing of, of standards. Your most recent album, Tell Her, the leading track, the, the well-known Billy Joel song, Tell Her About It. How did you get the idea to interpret that song? That I'm going to credit a friend of mine by the name of Jim Raposa. When we sat down to plan this album, and this one, this one took about four years to complete from beginning to end. We came up with our group of standard songs that, that we wanted. And what we wanted to add something different. And we said, well, what can we do differently? We opted to have two brand new jazz instrumentals added into the material, which were written by one of my saxophone players by the name of Daryl Brenzel, who is a retired military musician played for numerous years with the uh, Army Jazz Ambassadors. So that, that was something new that we could add. We had two brand new instrumentals. Then we wanted to do a couple more vocals, but we wanted to do something that was different. And we opted for something a little more contemporary. So we had sat down and we picked, end result, we picked Elvis Presley's Stuck on You, which I believe was his first hit when he returned to the United States from the army, from his two-year stretch in the army. Then we opted for Freddie Mercury's crazy little thing called Love, which had been done in a big band setting before by another artist, but we thought we would do our version where it kind of mimicked a sound that Joe Williams would have done with Count Basie. And then we decided Billy Joel has a lot of songs that he has written that have either been done in a big band format or 
or even Frank Sinatra recorded just the way you are. But we had opted for tell her about it because it was something that, to our knowledge, nobody had attempted with the style that we do. And I'm going to be perfectly frank with you that um, for me, vocally, that was a very challenging song because it was not something I typically sing before. And with the range that that song requires was a real workout. It was a real marathon when we recorded it. Is there a song on the album, Tell Her, that in particular you are fond of or most proud of? Uh, I'm going to have to split it three ways. Tell her about it just because of the challenge that I had in recording that. Taking a new song, just the whole concept of taking a what is a rock and roll song and doing doing it in that style. I'm very proud of that one. It was the one I had to work the hardest to, to do. Then I would have to say, as long as I'm singing the Bobby Darren song, I was very proud of that. That one we recorded in Los Angeles. And I would have to say Route 66. I think that was my favorite track from the album. Mm-hmm. We, we finally got around to recording that because that, that's a song that if I work with a small group, it's one that I love to go to, and it's it's always fun to do. So, and and the fact that we had Jerry Weldon, a tenor sax player from New York, came down for one day, and we did a big band session and a small group session, and just having Jerry doing solos, it's just very fun to see him work. Jerry works typically with Harry Connick Jr on tour and now that Connick has got his own TV show and and pretty much has his own band there Jerry is the tenor sax player that you see and it's really fun to watch him not just hear him because he he kind of reminds me of Sam Butera in in the way the way his stage presence when he's performing and it doesn't matter who he's performing with that that's the way he is regardless of the artist just to give the listeners a little bit of background, how we more or less connected was through the late Frank Sinatra Jr. There was an interview with Frank Sinatra Jr. on this program, and I asked him, who out there is doing the best job at performing the American Songbook? And he listed Diana Krall and you. I was hoping you could tell the listeners about how you met Frank Sinatra Jr. and, and about the friendship that you had with him that uh, <laughs> i got I, i'm gonna be honest that interview when i heard it for the first time really really gave me a a good turn to a bad week that week so i met frank in 2004 my first meeting with him was not very eventful or memorable but twice in that year i went to see his show that he was doing Sinatra sing Sinatra. And the second time around, no pun intended, <laughs> he had a two night engagement in Baltimore. And that was very convenient for me because um, he was performing with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. And that that was very close to home. And 
literally a 15-minute drive. This is becoming a reoccurring theme in my life. Everything's a 15-minute drive. Quit bragging. <laughs> well, except for when I actually have to go to work. But a little bit of the backstory for those that may not be aware, I have a daytime job where I am, well, presently I'm a railway engineer and I've worked for four different companies in my career. Currently it's Amtrak, but there was a time I worked for CSX. I have made a lot of friends in the railroad world, in the industry, and one of my friends is probably one of the foremost railroad historians in our time, a gentleman by the name of Bill Howes. And Bill is walking history because he worked for the Baltimore and Ohio, like my grandfather did. He became the youngest vice president of the Baltimore and Ohio in the late 60s. And he was the last upper management figure for passenger service before Amtrak came into existence and passenger trains as we know it in pre-Amtrak history disappeared. He essentially had told me about an opportunity he had to work with Frank Sinatra by way of his, um, of Sinatra's, one of Sinatra's managers, Elliot Wiseman. And Wiseman had contacted my friend Bill about helping develop a script for a TV movie centered around a railroad family. And Frank Sinatra was going to produce this project and also make a cameo appearance. And this project, they were discussing it around 1987-88. Uh, the project died about 1992. And so this was very late in Sinatra's career. Bill had sent me a copy of the synopsis of the script. He also sent me information he took out of his personal journal that was relevant to the uh, development of the script. And I had also a model, a Lionel model of the locomotive that would have been used in the production of this movie that was never made. I had talked to the uh, house manager at the, uh, at the Meyerhof, which is uh, where the BSO plays regularly, I told him what I had and I wanted to present it to Frank. And I got to go backstage and I met not just Frank, I met a couple of other people. One was uh, Bill Miller, the late Bill Miller, who had spent 40 plus years playing for Frank Sinatra. And a couple of people that were associated with Frank Jr. And they took me aside and got my information and, you know, and, and it, it was, it was a very fun evening because it was great music and then opportunity to meet the performer. And then about two years go by. And then, so here we are, 2006, I decided to go to Atlantic city to go see the show. And one of Frank's associates by the name of Johnny pizza was walking through the house and he saw me and he spotted me in the crowd and remembered who I was. And so after the show, waited around and met up with some of the um, uh, musicians that work with Frank. And that's where I got to meet Terry Woodson. 
And then it just kind of snowballed from there. And eventually, Frank would get to the point where he would recognize me by face and would memorize my name. As I said, it just snowballed from there. And But I never told him, I never told him up front that I was a singer because I didn't want to, I didn't want to spoil the makings of a friendship or, or anything along those lines by trying to make, make it about a music career. It wasn't until about four or five years had passed and Frank was playing in uh, Philadelphia with the octet that he has or had at the time. And I saw him and our mutual friend Merle Kellum walking down the street to the hotel and invited me to come and hang around with them for a couple hours. And which I got to change clothes and everything because I had my my uh, bag with me to, to change out of my suit and back into my street clothes. And we spent a couple hours just talking about trains, talking about music. And at the very end of the uh, evening, I went to excuse myself because we were in Philadelphia and I was going to catch the last Amtrak train back to Baltimore. And I had asked Frank if I could potentially borrow a song from his library for an engagement that I had later on in the summer. And he questioned, he, he said, you have a band? And I said, yes, I do. And, he, and you sing? He said, and I said, yeah. And he said, well, what kind of band is it? And I said, it's a big band. I said, we've got four rhythm and five saxophones, four trombones, four trumpets. And his response was, oh, yeah, that's a band. All right. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure you could kind of picture him saying that, too, with the with that inquisitive look there is, you know, because he, he wanted to ask a couple more questions. And I told him that the engagement in the summer that about three, three or four months down from that particular date, the gentleman that hired us wanted as many Johnny Mercer songs as that we could, that we could throw at him. So I had asked to borrow a copy of Midnight Sun which Frank had recorded with a band called, well, the band leader's name was Pat Longo. And they did an album back in either 1983 or 84 called Billy May for President. And Midnight Sun was one of the vocals that Frank did on that album. And he said that he would be more than happy to uh, lend me the song. That right there was an unbelievable situation for me because you hear a lot of negative stories from people who I perceive as just just all around jealous. And Frank was very, very helpful, very gracious. And I just want to put a lot of those type of rumors and mindset to rest from from people out there that just like to knock other people down. And I remember bringing the music for the first time to one of my rehearsals and the band members were looking at the music and then they said, well, we're going to have to make some notes here. I said, don't you touch that. I said, don't you make one mark on the, <laughs> on that music. So, and I had explained to him that I had actually borrowed 
the music from Frank. And I said, when we are done, we are sending it back to Los Angeles. And I want to send it back without any added marks. So that's how we found ourselves to the friendship and the way it had turned out over the years. What would you say was the greatest thing that you learned from him? Uh, there's a few things. And it wasn't just Frank. I also have to credit Terry Woodson just as much. One of the, one of the, well, not just one, there was a few occasions, especially at the end, where I got to go to quite a few rehearsals. And I was able to learn what I could in just sitting in the audience, sitting amongst the audience and just watching. But going to the rehearsal and just pretty much sitting up there on the stage right next to Frank while he's singing away and watching what Terry is doing, what Frank is doing, dissecting parts of an arrangement for the orchestra to make sure that things are done perfectly when it comes to doing the show. I have learned how to streamline my rehearsals just by watching what they do and watching them conduct, both of them, whether Frank would take over for a second just to get his point across to the orchestra, or on the one occasion where I've seen him conduct the entire orchestra with the, in the absence of Terry Woodson, because Terry would go to Japan once a year with the uh, Percy Faith Orchestra. And I remember Frank had to do the show singing and conducting. And I've done that numerous times. And I found that it's difficult no matter what your level of knowledge and experience may be. And there's just so many things I learned about running a band or conducting a band that just have made my life so much easier in trying to perform my music. The only opportunity that we never really had was to really sit down and record together. That's the only thing that I think we never got to do or, or to actually perform together. But that was a, something that you did want to do. Yeah, we had talked about it. And then um, we got as far as talking about if we had a date set up, if he was available, he would be there. Unfortunately, the date that we had set, he was sick. He could not make the recording date. And he got sick when we were planning, trying to figure out what song to use for a duet. But that's okay because he was willing to do it otherwise. And it's something that I'm going to say, yeah, I'm sad it never happened. But just the fact that he was willing to to help me and, and so forth, especially when starting out and you don't come from a family that is experienced in, in performing music or a family of musicians, it's a lot harder to really get in and find your way around. He really lifted me up. He would always brag on me to other people, you know, which... I would just find very humbling. He would introduce me to people like Sid Mark or or even just people that were working in the um, in the theaters and, and the uh, performing uh, venues. He would introduce me as one of our 
one of our great singers in this in this country and I really didn't know how to respond to that and I even thinking about it I'm kind of lost as to the only way I could say is it, it does make you feel a little humble because it's hard to think that anybody could be worthy of of that kind of a compliment quite honestly I I think I got a long way to go hmm well on that note why do you do what you do? Well, I love it. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's, that's the only reason why anybody should do anything. I don't do it for the money because, let's face it, to be where I'm at, you don't do it for the money. You do it because you love it. If you do a gig and you make some money, that's great. If you don't, then you make sure you have a good time. And that's... Usually what it comes down to is we just have a good time with what we do, whether whether it's the small group or the big band. And I do pride myself on doing shows with musicians, whether they are military musicians or their substitutes or from my original group. When they come to me at the end of the gig and they say, that was a lot of fun, I really enjoyed it and I can't wait to do it again, then you, you did something right. And... As I said, I love singing, and to have that opportunity to perform the songs that I like to do, I mean, I couldn't ask for more. What is the best thing about being Dale Korn? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I guess uh, I pretty much speak my mind, and I stay true to, to what I am. I, I I make it a point to... Even if I have to play politically correct, which, let's face it, I'm, I'm very horrible at doing, I still stand by my opinions or my beliefs, not just musically, because quite frankly, I'm, I don't care what genre of music it is, as far as I'm concerned, the style that we do is really where it's at, second only to classical and you know, or if, if it's just a belief on on life about treating people with respect, regardless of who they are or their background, I, I, I stay true to what I the way I, the way I feel, and that's probably that's probably the best thing because in those cases I learn to drown out what the naysayers or or anybody that has a uh, vicious nature. I, I don't care what they think. That's good. My last question. Who is Dale Korn? Uh, definitely somebody that knows how to fulfill his life dreams, no matter what they are, and make other people think that it looks easy when I chase those dreams. Because there's, if there's something that I really want to do, I, I make it an effort to, to do it regardless of the work that it would entail, whether it's something simple or something very complex. You can call me a dream chaser if you want, and that's pretty much what I am. Any parting words for our listeners? Anything you'd like to say? Mm, I would say go check out the new album, Tell Her. <laughs> but seriously, just go out and support live music, even if it's not mine. Uh, there's a local group that you enjoy or 
a local performer that you enjoy, go out there and support them. Just go out and listen to the music or listen to their recordings and do whatever you can to kind of let that style find its way into the mainstream and, and let let the people know that that the standards are still alive and well. Well spoken. Well, Dale Korn, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure. All right. And anyone who is interested in finding out some more information, they can visit Dale Korn online. Is it dalecornmusic.com? Yes. dalecornmusic.com. Very good. Look forward to talking on the next album. Definitely. I'll, I'll definitely let you know when it's coming. <laughs> Thank you. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care. The boop, bop, deep, bop, doodly, keep, bop, doodly, shop, bop, ding, daka, ooh, no, I just get up, I like a pom, pom, cook it to be, I just get up, 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 I just get up,